Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Caroline Crampton, web editor of the New Statesman, and each week we bring you an exciting mix of interviews, discussion and analysis. This week we talk to our science columnist Michael Brooks about the greatest scientist you've never heard of, and Philip Morn and I discuss sex on TV. But first, Helen Lewis talks to our crack political team of Raphael Baer and George Eaton about the week in politics. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers. First of all, we're going to talk a little bit about... Um, George, this week you interviewed Neil Kinnock. Yes. Um, all right. <laughs> you get all the cool gigs. Um, what did he say to you that was of particularly of interest? Well, the, the top line, I think, was on the EU referendum. So he said Labour must absolutely not support a referendum on membership. And that's interesting because there's still quite a lot of speculation that Labour could U-turn on this at some point before the election. So Miliband didn't uh, use his conference speech to do that, but it's, there's a chance they will use the window um, between the results of the 2014 European elections if they do badly, if they're beaten by UKIP, if, if UKIP comes second, say, OK, we recognise now we need to lance the EU boil. But and Kinnock's telling them, don't go there. But I've been thinking about what what is in it for Labour to offer a, a referendum? Because nobody's going to presumably make their choice of voting decision to vote Labour based on the fact, yes, I'll vote Labour, they will offer me an in-out referendum. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I agree with Kinnock, that why should, the, why should Labour allow its priorities to be determined by David Cameron, whose priorities are being determined by UKIP and his backbenchers? I'm I'm more amenable. I'm genuinely tall on this. I'm more amenable to the view that Labour certainly needs to consider whether or not it has an EU referendum. I think, but partly because Ed Miliband's pitch to the country would appear to be, I I sort of represent a new politics. I'm uh, prepared to take on powerful vested interests. I'm not afraid of a fight. And uh, although you know, nice metropolitan pro-Europeans might not see the EU as a nasty, powerful vested interest. A lot of people who might vote Labour really, really do. And your line that says, I'm prepared to stand up for the little guy, unless the little guy is being bossed around by bureaucrats in Brussels who are my friends, so let's not go there, move along, please, nothing to see here. It does diminish the position. And to go into an election campaign where the Tories are saying, well, we trust the people. Why don't you trust the people, Mr Miliband? What's your problem? Well, you think they're going to give the wrong answer, uh, which is exactly why the pro-Europeans don't want the referendum and everyone knows it. So that's a problem. There is also a a crude tactical reason why um, Labour and the Lib Dems might want to have a referendum pledge. And that is because um, if 
the Tories are the only party seriously saying you get a referendum. That is a genuinely good reason for UKIP voters to go back to the Tories. If everyone has a referendum, then Cameron's argument where he says, look, I don't, you, you might not like me, uh, you might like Mr Farage, but grow up, you want the referendum, you've got to vote Tory. If that's not true, if everyone's got one, and frankly it's going to happen anyway, and UKIP can say, look, it's the one party, lib lab con, it's all the same, um, then the UKIP vote holds up. And the UKIP vote holding up is a very, is, you know, it's not very nice, it's not very pretty, but tactically, that's one very good route for Edmund Aban to become Prime Minister. I don't say it's the, a right or a decent thing to do, but it's definitely a part of the tactical thinking in the Labour Party at the moment. But presumably he would have to give some sort of timetable for when that would happen. Yeah, that's, the, I mean, then you have the issue of, of do you say, do you try and you know, sort of leapfrog David Cameron and say, let's have the referendum. You know, you want to have a referendum? You know, fine, bring it on now. Let's resolve this thing. That at least would be consistent with the argument that against having a referendum so far, which has been, it's too much uncertainty. You could say this uncertainty is killing us. Actually, the only way we get certainty is by by saying, bring it on, bring it on now. I don't think, personally, I don't think Edmund Aband is strong enough to do that. And as a result, he, his principal position is he doesn't want one and he has to stand by his principles. But I can imagine a first year of a Miliband, um, whether a majority or a coalition government, that is dominated entirely by an EU referendum. I mean, what he, why would he give that up? Why would he hold that hostage fortune? Um, because, well, I mean, that, that's the, exactly why they don't want to do it. Yeah. You know, why, you know, and that's exactly why Douglas Alexander, who's very important in this, really doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to become Foreign Secretary and then have to spend the first year. Um, fighting a referendum campaign that, as George rightly said, only exists because some angry Tory backbenchers got David Cameron and half Nelson behind the Speaker's chair one day. I mean, why should that set Labour's agenda in government? But um, take a step back. Uh, it is now, I think, the settled view in this country that at some point we need to renew consent or not for Britain's membership of the EU. And as long as Labour's isn't saying those words in those terms, it looks a bit stupid. And that is a problem. And presumably the answer will be some sort of extremely fudgy position where they say, if things are renegotiated and the wind comes from the south on a Thursday, then we'll have a referendum, you know, to give themselves some Well, the, I mean, that's the Lib Dem position, <laughs> is sort of, we're the party of in and we're not afraid of a referendum and we've got, we accept the ref there's a referendum lock in on the statute books and all that. And um, we just don't need to set the date now because we don't know exactly what it is we'll be voting for or against. But by golly, we're for referendums and we're for staying in and don't ask too much about the detail. It's, it's not a brilliant position. It's more coherent than the Labour position. Um, thrilling as the EU is, I think we should probably move on a little bit to the post-reshuffle mood. Um, there's been some promotions, there's also been some big disses. Um, how, how is Labour bearing up, Ralph? Um, they are, I think now sort of comfortable, or sorry, Labour or Ed Miliband, two slightly different things there. The leader's office are, are quite comfortable that they've got um, the, you know, more people in front bench jobs who are they're loyal to Ed Miliband, more to the point their careers depend on Ed Miliband. So they are some of them, you know, third of the shadow cabinet now elected in 2010. It's, you can call it sort of more Milibandite Labour Party. Uh, was there a brutal cull of Blairites? Kind of yes and no. I mean, obviously, people who walk around big Blairite badges on their heads have been demoted. So 
from that point of view, clearly. So um, we're talking about Liam Byrne. Liam Byrne. Who um, went from work and pensions to higher education minister, yeah, which is not a cabinet yeah, role, right? Um, Stephen Twigg, who's now got some constitutional affairs. From job, being education. Yeah, and brief. Jim Murphy, who's international development, which is an important job. And but, George's role in their downfall is that you interviewed Len McCluskey back in, I think, was it April? And he essentially called for the head of all those. So you made... CCHQ is actually very happy this yes, week. Yes, I mean, they were they were always going to brand it Lens Reshuffle. I mean, they, they often speak as if everything Ed Miliband does is determined by Lynn McCluskey. In this case, it was slightly easier to do that because the sort of those who were sort of notably snubbed were blowouts. Although, interestingly, of course, Douglas Alexander, who is one of those who Lynn McCluskey singled out, remained as Shadow Foreign Secretary, very powerful position, and is also now chair of the general election campaign. And I don't think anyone could really say, you know, Tristram Hunt and, and Gloria de Piero. And then Charlie Faulkner, you know, Tony Blair's old flatmate coming back to advise Miliband on planning and transition to government are, are not on, are sort of on the left of the party. It's not uh, Len McCluskey's dream team. But how, I mean, but you were saying in the tense of separating off the leader's office from Labour, there is a general mood, isn't there, that everybody's sort of accepted it? There's yeah, the no interesting thing is that, I mean, it's notable, okay, Diane Abbott probably got sacked, uh, and she probably got sacked because around the kind of Syria war stuff, she was going off, letting it be known that she would flounce out in the shadow cabinet if they went to war. She was on Newsnight on the Friday night after that vote, busking about all who knows what, and, you know, so she got, she got, you know, punishment beaten out of the cabinet. Um... What, uh, what's interesting is that she's the only one, and she's from the left of the party, who then wrote something not at all helpful in The Guardian, saying, which you don't need to read because you should buy the New Statesman, everyone who's listening to this, by the way. There's a substantially superior progressive publication available in all good shops. Um, she wrote the piece saying, um, you know, well, frankly, you know, maybe you know, he, he looked a bit sort of anxious when he sacked me and his immigration policy is all wrong. You know, really, not... Super, not supremely unhelpful, but pretty unhelpful. Whereas the, the the more kind of conspicuously aggrieved people, as should might be, which is the Blairites, they they've all taken their their new status. They've taken their punishment quietly, and they're sitting in their sort of slightly diminished roles very quietly, not kicking up a fuss. So the the loyalty and the discipline um, is is remarkable, and which suggests that a lot of people think for all the possible weaknesses in the operation they could still win and Ed Miliband's still going to be Prime Minister. And on the Tory side, they had what I saw at least two publications referred to as the flat cap reshuffle in that um, beautiful way because they wanted to bring in supposedly more people with northern accents and more women. Did they actually achieve that, George? Well, they did in that you've had... the, the Tory party from a very low base now has more women and more northerners in uh in really high, fairly high positions but this was really uh, George Osborne's reshuffle i mean the the clear correlation is that all of those promoted or most of those promoted Sajid Javid Matt Hancock Claire Perry Greg Hands all used to work for George Osborne so what was an already strong power base in the party has become even stronger now should George Osborne launch a leadership bid at some point if David Cameron is still Prime Minister after the next election. He does have a, a strong base from which to build, given his you know, rather dismal approval ratings among uh, among the country and among uh, and among Tory voters even. But he's got a new haircut now, so I think that really might change things. For yeah. um, I'm really interested in this because I was thinking about the, the tension between you expect to see between number 10 and number 11. How, how, Raph, how much of that is there? Not much, uh, to be honest. The, first of all, they went in, they were friends before um, they went into government far more than 
um, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown ever were. I mean, Blair and Brown worked together on the New Labour project, but they weren't pals. Um, they were acutely aware, Cameron and Osborne, that is, acutely aware of not repeating mm. uh, the, the Blair-Brown era. Um, um, I was just trying to imagine what would happen if you'd had a similar kind of that many promotion of many Brownites under the Blair mm. government. We'd have all been writing stories about, hang on a minute, he's on manoeuvres. But you, I mean, maybe we're just so conditioned. There is, to yeah, I think that. It, it is a strong relationship. I mean, someone said to me the other day that you know, there are only three people running the Conservative Party, and it's David Cameron, George Osborne, and Linton Crosby. I mean, even William Hague, who was once very influential and, and part of the sort of inner steering committee of the Tory side of the coalition, seems to have been um, sidelined a little bit. So. I mean, it really is very tight at the top there. But he was on the Sunday politics, when, you know, I do panellist stuff on, and um, he just didn't seem at all engaged with domestic politics. His focus, William Hague's this is, is just it seems to now be completely on you know, Syria and foreign affairs, and it just it seems to have detached completely from, from domestic politics. Yeah, that's, that's certainly the impression you get around Westminster, and people say that, that you, you feel that he has... I think they, they Cameron, I get the impression Cameron Osborne will sometimes defer to him and ask his judgment as a sort of slightly wiser old bird. Um, but talking of former leaders of the Tory party, can we catch up on you know, your favourite mine, Ian Duncan Smith? Um, he's obviously had promote, Esther McVeigh has been promoted up his department from uh, Disabilities Minister to Employment Minister. I'd just like to check in on is Universal Credit still a massive train crash that's coming towards us at high speed? Well, I think it's a much smaller train than it was before. They have decided that rather than you know, potentially allowing this to be a, a huge uh, debacle, we are just going to scale and scale and scale it down to the point where it almost can't be seen. So the joke now is that it's you know, non-universal credit. That I think Specific it's still <laughs> operating in that, uh, that one small job centre in Manchester. There may be a couple of other pilots that they're rolling out, as they, as they love to say in the jargon, um, but this has really been pushed back. And he, any ambition that he had to really transform the system has gone, I think. And that and George Osborne is one of those responsible for that. That George Osborne wants a relentlessly disciplined and sharp, as does Linton Crosby, a, f- a focused election campaign around you know, three big issues, maybe the deficit, welfare and immigration. And welfare, that's going to be the emphasis is going to be on the benefit cap, how we're toughening up the system. This rather moralistic vision that Ian Duncan Smith had of help transforming the system, making work pay for those who had become reliant on the welfare state has has, has gone. Yeah, this is an important point, that the re- reason for doing the uh, universal credit was to create some magic taper that would mean that um, benefits didn't pay more than work. Um, actually, the, the way they will argue that work pays more than um, benefits now is by saying that they have by having the tax cut um, for low earners. So the, the sort of, as it were, the progressive in quotes moral impetus of the universal credit has been rendered obsolete in terms of their rhetoric and anyway and so yeah as George says that the political impetus is to just show that you're whacking the benefits bill as hard as you can and on that downbeat note I'm going to say thank you very much to George and Rath and I'm here with Michael Brooks, our science columnist, and he's going to tell us about the greatest scientist you've never heard of, is that right? That's right, a guy called Stanford Oshinsky, um, who nobody has ever heard of. I, I'd only heard of him when I started writing my last book, and uh, he just blew me away when I started to find out more and more about what he'd done and, and, and what he was up to. And he invented a lot of things that we 
know and use today, right? So incredibly, he had, uh, he, well, 1968, he had a patent for something that would lead to uh, what the New York Times called a television so uh, flat that you could hang it on a wall. And everybody said, this is absolutely ridiculous. Why would you ever <laughs> hang a television on a wall? You know, these things were enormous. And, um, but the technology that he had uh, that, that could, uh, could create these, these flat screens um, actually, you know, is, is what's um, behind some of the greatest sort of companies in Japan now, unfortunately. So um, America kind of lost out. <laughs> and why didn't he push it further? Why didn't he eventually develop it? So he had this, uh, this sort of switch, effectively, it's, what it's, uh, it's called a threshold switch, which kind of was a competitor with the transistor at the time, which, and the transistor was only you know, a decade or so mm. old. And uh, lots of the Americans... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Record firms had you know, big sort of interest in making sure the transistor cornered every part of the market. So he was rubbished and there were lots of, sort of things in the press saying, oh, the guy must be a fraud, this will never work. And it was from a kind of corner of physics that, that nobody really knew much about called amorphous materials, which are kind of messy and, and not sort of regular in their structure. Mm. So they, they rubbished him and they sort of said, you know, this will never work. And no, so nobody would kind of buy his patents or nobody was really interested in licensing the technology. Uh, and in the end, he sold it to a few small companies um, in Japan. So they bought the license. So these companies were things like Sony and Mashishita <laughs> and Canon. And, and they, you know, they became huge. And I mean, that wasn't his only invention. He, he holds the patent for the original uh, rewritable CDs and DVDs, the technology wow. behind that. And, uh, and the lithium metal hydride battery, which is in every Toyota Prius, that's his too. So electric cars, he electric cars were kind of to, his thing. Yeah. And initially, General Motors bought the um, the patent for the the battery, and they just had such trouble developing it; they couldn't make it work, and they, they just abandoned it and gave up on it, and sold it to uh, another Japanese company. <laughs> so, um, so you know, in the week when America is hitting its sort of debt ceiling and, and not allowed to borrow any more money from anybody, you know, they can look back at this guy and sort of say, well, maybe we should have got him. What might have been? What might have been? Um, so was he just not interested in money? He wasn't ever interested in making money. So he said, I'm, uh, I think the famous quote of his was, you know, I am on the, I am on the side of the oppressed against the oppressor. You know, and he, he was a real kind of, you know, lefty, basically, really strong lefty. And mm. um, partly because he grew up in an immigrant family that came from Eastern European, Eastern Europe. His father used to sell, uh, or sorry, collect scrap metal on the streets of Akron, Ohio, you know, as, a, as an immigrant. And Stanford went to school, but never really got on with school and left uh, without graduating uh, from, from school properly. And what he did was he, he used to go to the local library and borrow armfuls of books uh, to learn how to do science. And he was fascinated by science. And he, so he borrowed all these books and he actually had a very um, cool librarian who used to let him borrow from the mm. adult section, even though he wasn't <laughs> supposed to. And so that's how he learned his science. And, and and I think he's, you know, he never lost that sense of having to you know, do everything from the bottom up, you know, have to really work his way up. And so when he was running firms and factories, you know, he, he was very much part of the workforce. 
and and you know there are records of people that used to work for him who say you know it was like he was just one of your colleagues he didn't you know you you wouldn't have known that he was the inventor of all this stuff you wouldn't have known that he was the the CEO of the business mm. and he was still part of their union as well. So the just the lowest workers he was alongside them. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. yeah, which you don't see so much these days. No, definitely not the sort of factor of CEO to worker pay ratio. Yeah, it's, I think it's something like five hundred. To one or something like that, and yeah. and Stan Oshinsky never. I don't think he ever took more than fifty to one. No. And I think I'm right to say so. It's just under a year since he died. Yeah. So um, so this week, seventeenth uh, of October, is the first anniversary of his death, um, which is uh, something that I, I kind of you know think we should celebrate. You know, this mm. was an amazing kind of inventor, uh, completely uncelebrated really during his lifetime. Um, except by the people who he worked with, you know, they just couldn't believe they got to work with him. So there's a guy called Neville Mott who won a Nobel Prize uh, for physics and basically said, well, I got the idea from Stan, he just gave it away to me. And lots of his other colleagues in, in science kind of had the same experience, it's like he had a good idea, just give it away. And so, so he, his name never became known at all, really, which is why he's the greatest scientist you've never heard of, but I plan to change that. But his ideas did get developed and they didn't yeah. come to fruition. Yeah, so you know, we're using his technologies every single day. You know, it's just incredible that you can, you know, be this productive and and be this kind of selfless as well. And so what what's your plan for getting, getting so my, to know my, about him? My my big plan really. I I think um the seventeenth should be Ovshinsky Day. I think we should celebrate, you know, inventiveness and creativity in science and also just celebrate the selfness selflessness of it. Mm. You know, um I just love the fact that he was so willing to kind of give everything away. Uh, he, he got kicked off the board of his last company a, a couple of years before he died because they, the rest of the board were just fed up with never making any money. Because <laughs> so, he, so, he kept giving things away. And uh, I, I think we need more of that. So I suppose as well that um, if we get this, this day or this even unofficially, it's a sort of cautionary tale, isn't it? To kind of maybe pay attention to the slightly mad person with the good ideas. I think so, yeah. And, and not, you know, a lot of sort of what, a lot of the corporate decisions that are made are sometimes motivated by fear. You know, it's like we don't want our, our product to, mm. to lose place in the market. And there's a kind of lack of foresight as well, sort of thinking about in open terms about what might be, and, you know. And that, that sense that he came from, you know, because he didn't have a college degree, you know, he wasn't a trained scientist, they just dismissed everything that he mm. was doing. And I think that's a very dangerous mindset. And I think, you know, you do well to, to think about, you know, looking at the outsider occasionally. I mean, you know, a lot of the Mavericks are are mad and, and, and useless, but some of them are, you know, are, you know, have something worth looking at. Well, there you are, podcast listeners. Let's all celebrate Shinsky Day uh, and listen to the mad people with the good ideas. Philip Morn, and we're going to discuss an interesting week for sex on television, uh, particularly the show Masters of Sex, which we both watched this week. Phil, what did you think of it? I enjoyed it, though I, I remain a little bit uh, ambivalent because I thought there was an awful lot in the. This is the pilot of the show, and I thought they included so much in this episode. We had the main two characters sort of being introduced to each other. This is. Um, Bill Masters and uh, Virginia Johnson, his secretary come associate. Mm. I think she describes herself as associate at some point. The eyebrows rise a little bit. Um, they, you know, they're introduced. She has a relationship, which then goes sour all in the one episode. You know, we learn all about um, 
Bill Masters and his wife. They're trying to have a baby, but they can't. So he's a a, a gynecologist, um, but he's starting all this sort of new research into sex. He's going to going to to lift the lid. He's going to objectify what goes on in the bedroom and 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 bring out the data. Um, I thought it was funny. You know, it had a real. It had a real kinship with Mad Men. This is the, com- the comparison that everyone's making, but it is set in that 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 milieu. It's the 1950s. It has a similar feel, a similar look. Um, so I think it's it is justified. It's also dealing with a liberalisation of, of of moral uh, and kind of private life. And this is, you know, there's a real craze for this sort of thing, and that's what we're looking at again. Um, did did you prefer? What did you think? I I think I liked it. I'm I'm prepared to come out and say I liked it. I'm not quite so on the fence as you are. Um, I liked it very much, particularly in regard to uh, the Virginia Johnson character. Mm. Um, we should say that all of this is based on two real people, um, Bill Masters and Virginia Johnson, who were became famous as sex researchers, and now Showtime have made one of these big sweeping American dramas about their lives based on, I think it's a 2007 biography of them. Um, and I particularly liked in this dramatisation the portrayal of Johnson, who is, she's twice married, twice divorced, she's got two children, uh, she's working as a secretary, that's how she first meets the great doctor Bill Masters at a hospital, but she's also studying for a degree. She's having uh, a fling, I suppose you describe it, the relationship you said that goes sour with another doctor in the hospital. And I, the, I suppose the moment where my, my heart really turned for it was when um, she, this doctor's kind of pressing his suit, he really wants to go out with her, he wants to go home with her, gives her a lift home, they're at the door, that kind of stereotypical American scene where he's obviously, you know, looking for a good night kiss and she says, you know, I'm, I'm not looking for anything serious, I've got children, you know, and you think you know where this is going, you think he's going to get back into his car disgruntled and she says, you know, I just want us to be friends and he looks all disgruntled and she says, but that doesn't mean friends can't kiss. And that's the moment for me. That's it's when, a great scene, yeah. though I think they should have left it at that. But of course, within the same 60 minute episode, if it was even 60 minutes, it's Channel 4, so flipping adverts to deal with. <laughs> um, but if it, you know, it then goes further. Ethan, I think his name is, he, you know, he says, he, he becomes obsessed with her. You know, he's, he's in love with her and, and she says, well, we're friends. He's, but, you know, the things that we've done, that's love, isn't it? I so the roles are reversed from the traditional they kind are, of... But I think that also fits into the time and what they're trying to do with their research mm. is his complete uh, uncomprehension that you, you cannot have the kind of sex they're having without being in love and therefore being married. That yeah. they're all one and the same thing. Whereas what Masters and Johnson were trying to do throughout their long careers where they worked on this kind of thing, they were trying to show that, no, you can, people do, and that's okay. Um, that actually, if we truly understood, because at this point, all kinds of things that routinely fill women's magazines and men's magazines mm. about sex, none of that was ever discussed publicly. All of the so-called received wisdom about sex was based on sort of anachronistic bits of Freud and old wives' tales. And what they're actually trying to do is scientifically measure what happens to the human body during sex. Um, and in doing so, both, I suppose it has medical implications for impotence and fertility and all that sort of thing, but it also has societal and moral implications for if we can do this, should we? Yeah, and that's something I'd like to see them take up and pursue um, at at a lot sort of deeper level. In this first show, it was very much, why are you doing this? Because science. 
okay and then yes i'm really on board let's do it you know there wasn't really much uh discussion of what they actually intended to prove other than you know how long is uh, the the pinnacle of an orgasm or whatever you know um and i think that it would be great to see how you know how this data can be used or how it will be used and of course you know for someone in britain anyway watching this this week the great dramatic irony you've already talked about cosmopolitan and all these magazines and the way that they will distort any kind of data um that we might have about uh sex lives behind all of this is the fact that channel 4 have also launched a program called sex box in which two people (laughs) go into a box and have sex and then come out and talk about it um this sort of yeah strange kind of uh, relationship counseling uh, in public thing that's going on you know and you kind of think was it worth it bill yeah well the the people come out of the box and they talk about the sex they've just had with some experts who you can't help thinking are in some way the sort of bastard descendants of masters and johnson um who are trying to psychoanalyze and biologically all these things uh of two people who've just had sex in public but behind a the flimsy walls of an opaque box. Um, it is bizarre, but it's also, it's interesting with regards to how Masters of Sex portrays the actual act itself, because as the title would suggest, there's quite a lot of sex in it. And the researchers, Masters and Johnson, they had to do this strange taboo thing of asking people they knew to have sex in front of them. Yeah. So that they could measure it. <laughs> yeah. And might be a little difficult for me to say this without blushing, but this is a podcast, not a TV, so it doesn't really matter. But of course, there's all these different uh, sort of sex scenes in the in the episode, and they and they differ so uh, they contrast so sharply. You know, you have the first very very awkward scene in which uh, Masters has sex with his wife, um, and you know it's sort of totally impersonal. You know, she's facing away from him because. So he claims, though, who's going to question him at this stage? Uh, this is the best way for her to get pregnant. Yes, of course, another irony is that the great kind of uh, gynecologist sort of uh, sex expert is most likely infertile, it seems. Mm. Um, and then you have the first sex scene with uh, Ginny and Ethan, the uh, the uh, junior doctor, um, you know, which is all about oral sex and, you know, her essentially showing him the ropes. And... I have this sort of Game of Thrones test now, I think. Mm. So I've watched Game of Thrones and every, I think it's about 15 minutes, they have to kind of flash a pair of breasts or, you know, uh, some young woman in the nude, there are brothels left, right and centre in Game of Thrones. And I found it nothing but cynical. I found it nothing but misogynistic. I like other things about the show, but I thought this aspect of it was really inexcusable. So I'm interested to see what what um, Masters of Sex will do with this because we know it has to be there. Yeah. You know, it's in the title. It is a big, important aspect of the narrative. Will they be sort of tasteful or are they just looking to, uh, you know, bring in as wide an audience as possible? Because as we all know, sex sells. Yeah, this is true. And I'm also very interested to see how they handle that. But I think the way through it to keep it true to what they claim to be wanting to do, explore it interestingly, is, as you say, the contrasts. Mm. It's we get the kind of hurried, embarrassed, shameful, with all your pyjamas on sex Mm. of a married couple in trouble. And we also get the sort of voyeuristic, strange abandon of two people who've never met each other before and don't know each other having sex in a brightly lit laboratory attached to monitors. And I think as long as... They kept falling off. They kept falling, yeah, which was bizarre. (laughs) I think the contrast there is what's going to keep it sort of true to its plot and its mission. If we get as you say, just 
gratuitous breasts everywhere, then we'll know that Masters of Sex has become just sex. We'll have to wait and see. Today's podcast was presented by me, Caroline Crampton, with Raphael Bear, Michael Brooks, George Eaton, Helen Lewis and Philip Morn. It was produced by me, edited by Philip Morn, and our theme music is taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. More information about how to subscribe to our podcast feed can be found at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast, and we're also now available through Audioboo. We'll be back next week.